Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is going to be 169, episode 169. It's going to be another in the classic Spotlight series, this one on the thoughts on Gene Roddenberry. You'll probably recognize this. not one of those classic musical themes that you once you hear or you automatically know that that's Star Trek. Um, probably everybody uh, that's into any kind of something to do with science fiction or just television in general, no matter what country you're in the world, you, you tend to know right away. It's just like the uh, Twilight Zone theme. There's some things that just rings out right away. Uh, a lot of folks don't know that he actually wrote the lyrics to that. You know, Space, The Final Frontier. Just the musical part was done by Alec... Alexander Courage, but he actually wrote the lyrics to that. Now let's talk a little bit about Gene Roddenberry. Now I'm, I'm including him in our literary series because there are many instances, uh, and I'm talking about people that have done things you know, across the board for years on end as, tele, as teleplays, that these television writers also deserve an enormous amount of credit in terms of how they introduce ideas into society, how they... Uh, Really, I felt illuminated the literary world into television, so it didn't have to always be a bunch of, you know, corny malarkey stuff and then a commercial. Uh, they actually made it literate and even intelligent. He's definitely one of the uh, examples of doing that. They're up there with Rod Sterling, okay? All right, so uh, he was born uh, Eugene Wesley Roddenberry in 1921 in El Paso, Texas. Um. He decided to join the uh, the uh, Army Air Forces, which was the you know the forerunner for the Air Force in the United States, and he became a pilot. And during World War II, uh, he uh, flew 89 uh, combat missions, uh, two of them that resulted in the crash of his plane. Uh, he did win the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal for his uh, his uh, career service in there until the war was over with. Later on, he wound up flying uh, commercially as a, a commercial pilot for Pan Am. Uh, then he had the third a crash of his plane. He had crashed the, the, the plane that had some malfunction in the Syrian desert. A number of the people had died. He had rescued a number of the others. At that point there, he decided to uh, give up pursuing flying, and he wanted to just do something more in the, uh, you know, the television writing world. It's something he's always been dreaming of, but he kind of held back because, you know, um, he's a flyer, he's a pilot, kind of a macho guy. 
So he winds up becoming a cop because, you know, that's what I think of when I want to become a writer. I want to become a motorcycle cop <laughs> in, in L.A., one of the most the biggest and dangerous cities in the planet. Yeah, but that's this is Gene Roddenberry. He had an unusual uh, knack of uh, being people connected, but also uh, he had that, uh, that wild spirit in him. Okay? So he becomes a cop, and he's still submitting scripts out. He winds up actually getting some freelance material out, uh, what they used to call spec scripts. I think they still call them that way. Just pretty much the individual episodes when you're not actually the staff writer. You're just submitting shows, uh, scripts for the show. So that's what he did. Uh, he became very um, well-known from the Highway Patrol. That was the name of a TV show back in the day. Have Gun, Will Travel. I actually remember that one. Uh, another show about Marines called The Lieutenant. Ironically, through a number of these shows, which had a sort of a, a Western motif, which was a lot of his ideas, um, he met many of the actors that later on he either married or incorporated into his show, either as actors or as writers. So he met um, uh, DeForest Kelly, and he met uh, Leonard Nimoy, and he uh, met uh, Major Barrett, who he eventually married. Uh, he met uh, the writer D.C. Fontana. We'll talk a little bit about her. So many of these people, as he's going through these shows, he, he met them, and later on, when he got the clearance for a Star Trek, uh, that's when he, he called them upon to, to bring them into the show. It's kind of great to have a, a network that way, and that just sort of worked out for him because he kind of knew what these people could do, and that really helped. Because uh, one of the problems with being a, a, a showrunner, as they still call it, is, is that you're pretty much the producer, so you have to deal with getting all the right people on board acting-wise. You have to deal with the, uh, the ever-eternal the ever uh, uh, pursuit of figuring out how to balance your budget with the money they're willing to give you and still get the show done on the quality you want it to do so that it could be successful and, you know, and, and picked up by the network. So he started doing well with the spec script writing, and he figured if he wanted to go really full-born into what he wanted to do, he, he needed to stop being a cop. So he wanted to resign being a cop and went full into the writing, okay? He wound up meeting uh, Major Barry in one of the shows and married her. That was his second uh, wife, his first wife, uh, during the uh, World War II and, the, and the, the Pan Am and the cop years. They wind up getting the divorce. So he's peddling this show, Star Trek. That's what he calls it. It's pretty much what they call the wagon train uh, to the stars. Okay, they had that kind of a Western motif to it. You know, if you recall, Captain Kirk is kind of a swerving, macho kind of guy. I wouldn't call him the greatest intellect on, on, on Star Trek compared to the other characters, but he wasn't a dummy either. But he was definitely a guy that, you know, he had the karate chop in the head. He got no problem sleeping with a green woman. And shooting a phaser in your face if he had to. So he, he had a little bit of everything he would want on that kind of a show. He had that little bit of that swagger and that, that macho-ness there. Um, so he convinced the network at this time, which I believe was NBC, yeah, to uh, to pick up the show. So they, they, they only uh, gave him enough money to do three shows. Just to sort of like see what can be done. And they test one out. That worked out really well. Later on, in, in, in the show's uh, early history of that first year, it winds up getting picked up and, and, and bought by Desilu Studios. Now, Desilu was the, um, the, uh, a private company owned by Desi Arnaz, the famous Cuban uh, singer-musician who was married to Lucille Ball. 
Cecil that Desi Lu. And an interesting factoid about them is not only were they the first really um, powerful interracial couple in, in Hollywood, but also at one point they had more property and more studios than some of the actual studios did. At one point, Desi Lu literally had more studios than, than, than the, big, the big ones. So it's amazing what they were able to do. And later on, when they got divorced, uh, Desi Lu and, and Lucia Ball, Lucia Ball became one of the richest and most powerful of women in Hollywood and run entire studios, including the Star Trek show and, and many others. I think they were also behind Mission Impossible, too, which ironically had Leonard Nimoy in there. See how that worked out? She probably saw him on Star Trek and said, yeah, this guy would be going cool on that show. Just, you know, get off the ears and let's do some spy work. So uh, that's that's a, just one of those interesting factoids on how so many things uh, sort of uh, intertwine and interconnect. Okay? One of the highlights for Star Trek, besides, you know, being a, you know, a primetime science fiction show when there really wasn't too many. If you think about it, when this came out in 1966, there wasn't very many, uh, you know, uh, sci-fi shows that were even on television at all, like ever. I think we had Buck Rogers, which was whew, horrible in terms of the special effects, although God bless, they did what they could. And I think uh, Lost in Space, which is more of a comedy camp type of thing. Not that there wasn't any humor in Star Trek, but it was much more serious show. If you remember, or if you don't remember, Star Trek is pretty much about the Earth forming a federation with other planets so that they can explore the, the, the galaxy peacefully and, and work together with other people. And it only had done that after the Third World War when they had figured out that they needed to be more united as, as a planet in order to uh, not only travel to the stars but also to survive as a species. So uh, it, got, you know, it got its act together, so to speak. And, and Star Trek became probably one of the first, if not the first, uh, TV show. Remember, there was a few other TV shows that would come from England too, like UFO. Uh, but it was mostly cool-looking girls, you know, and, and silly space stuff. Or the Space 1999, which is another, a really good show. They they did a wonderful job. Um, there really wasn't too many. And of course, I, I think uh, what's it what's it called? Doctor Who. There, there wasn't too many. But Star Trek was the only one that had a, a more positive outlook for humanity going forward. You know, people had already settled themselves on Earth, and now they're going out to explore. They're trying to do peaceful things. Sure, they come across some bad things now and then. Sometimes you got to knock an alien over the head. Sometimes you got to shoot a phaser at some weirdo. Hey, that's just life in the big universe, okay? But it was still a show that was trying to work uh, the things out about prejudice and, and about uh, racism. And, and in many instances, those were solved already on Earth. So it was a show that really uh, it was trying to explain that Humanity had learned a lot and, and now was fit to go into the stars. Which right now, we're in the stars, but we're still not really fit. So Star Trek it was ahead of them then and is still ahead of us now. That's for sure. Now, what's really, really interesting about uh, Gene Roddenberry is that even though, yes, he had a real interest in, in, in science fiction, he really was more of the Western kind of a guy. You know, shoot him up type of thing. So he in, he definitely incorporated some of that in there. Of course, you know he was a military guy as well. So we got a little bit of that in into the show as well. Uh, but just like the show's, I, I guess you could say, major theme. It, it was the major theme of Gene Roddenberry's life. He he definitely uh, agreed 
that uh, society needed to be uh, working its problems out and, and, and that prejudice was a huge issue that had to be addressed and, and, and ultimately solved. Um, without making a joke, um, uh, not only did Jean Roddenberry have the first interracial kiss between uh, Nicole Nichols and uh, William Shatner, you know, uh, the Captain Kirk on the show, uh, but also uh, he was dating her and they had a relationship in real life. And then later on, he had a relationship with uh, Major Barrett. And at one point, he was actually having a relationship with both of them until he eventually married uh, Barrett. But they, they kept on good terms all, all his life. And he was definitely the classic guy back in those days that, you know, when you're that creative, but you're also that macho, you're, you're not going to be somebody that's big on fidelity. And he wasn't. So he was definitely one of those creative people that, that had women everywhere. No matter what he was married or not, it didn't seem to matter. That's just who he was. You know, you got some of these writers, they have depression problems, you know, issues from shell shock like Edward Sterling did. And you had others that uh, had drugs or alcohol problems. Um, maybe like, you know, um, Steinbeck and you know, Hemingway and, of course, even Poe. You know, and then, of course, you had others that... Um, that were like Roddenberry. He obviously had certain insecurity problems. And that's really what that sort of, what they would call adultery or philandering or womanizing or whatever. That's really where it stems from. And obviously that was his, you know, weak link on things. But they all seem to have something. And that, that was his. Obviously it didn't stop him, stop him from being a, a great uh, creative producer and a, and a great writer. He helped you write a lot of these scripts. And he also, he was very... Very forward-looking in terms of the way he treated people uh, on the professional level. If you recall, that very first episode, which was entitled The, the Cage, uh, had Maggio Barrett in there, his wife, and, and she was number one. So she was the number one uh, leader on that uh, ship next to the captain. So he, he had a, already a woman as a, in, in command. And uh, he brought about one of the very first uh, TV writers that was successful, D.C. Fontana, and she did a lot of great work on the show. But Star Trek was a very stressful uh, venture for uh, Roddenberry because he always felt it was on the verge of being canceled or he always had to deal with the networks and all their issues. Can we have somebody with ears on the show? Spock, does he not look like the devil? Can we not please have people kissing who are from different races? Why do you got to have the black scientist as the scientist? Oh, really? I don't understand that question. But nevertheless, this is the 60s. So many of the things he was doing to be socially progressive on the show definitely rubbed the people the wrong way in many instances. But that's that's who he was, and that's what he was trying to do on the show. And you know, to him, it wasn't some bucket list or some some quick um, politically correct thing like they try to do today. At least he was very serious about doing it, and he didn't mind taking the hits for doing something like that. The show only lasted for three years, and the le the first two years, he literally was doing everything he can to try to keep the show going with letter-writing campaigns. He tried to call as many people as possible to help write for the show. It's um, a well-known fact that he called Harlan Ellison the great sci-fi sci writer, and he wrote Harlan Ellison, uh, which everyone considers is the number one or the greatest uh, Star Trek episode ever, ever put on screen, called The City on the Edge of Tomorrow. Excuse me, I'm sitting on the edge of forever. Uh, but they had a huge fight, Ellison and Gene Roddenberry, and uh, they never spoke again. Uh, later on, years later, uh, Ellison wrote, uh, got the uh, the city of the edge 
on the edge of forever, the, the actual original screenplay put into a book form with some other things he was doing. And I read it, and, and, and I agreed with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, he's the producer. There's no way you could put the script like that on. There's no way he could have been able to swing the budget for that. It would have been over two hours. I remember this is a show that so-called an hour show, but once you take 22 minutes out of it, you know what I mean? You're lucky you got 40 minutes left. I think you have 38 minutes left, you know? So that is the, the, uh, the real difference between sometimes being an artist like Harlan Ellison and then sometimes being a producer. It's, it's, it's really the same difference between being an editor and being a writer. You have to wear a different hat. You have to have a different audience. There are other different things you have to take into account seriously. And that's what Roddenberry did. So he wasn't trying to rewrite the show because it was fun to piss off his friend who he called on to do it in the first place. He wasn't trying to do that. He was just trying to make the show something that was going to be financially and creatively digestible for the show. I love what he did on the show. It was great, great, great. But I read the script, uh, the original one that Ellison uh, read, and it's, it's a wonderful work of art. I mean, sure, I'd love to see him do something like that. It just wasn't going to be possible. And there were some points on that show uh, for the script that even wasn't very Star Trekable, so to speak. So, I mean, there's a little bit of that as well, too. Took a couple liberties there. But, hey, made some history. He got credit, won a Hugo Award. Um he himself, uh, Roddenberry, won two Hugo Awards. He also won the Brother Award from the uh, NAACP, National Association of the Vanational Color People, and he won the Exceptional per Public Service uh, a Medal from NASA. Uh, if you don't recall, I'll remind you, or at least I'll inform you, one of the four spaceships in the shuttle program for NASA was the Enterprise. So and they named that after his uh, his ship on Star Trek, the Enterprise, the USS Enterprise. So that was a, a really great uh, thing to have done. Um, outside of the uh, the arts, uh, let's keep in mind that um, he had an eye on science, and science had an eye on him. They wind up naming one of the craters on Mars the Roddenberry Crater, and then there's an asteroid called four six five nine Roddenberry. So there's an asteroid out there with his name on it. And I know, those. I think that's pretty cool. Um, now, Roddenberry wasn't your classic type of, uh, of writer in the sense that he was trying to cover everything that was out there. So, I mean, they really didn't do much of religion on the show or, or too much on, on philosophy other than maybe a few things about, you know, the Vulcan philosophy and thing to try to explain you know, having some kind of alien on board and, and how they interact with humans and, you know, and do all of that. Otherwise, he, he really wasn't into that kind of a deep angle like, let's say, Rod Sterling would have been. Uh, Ron Berry really liked the social aspects of the show because those are the things he was personally committed to in his own life. So he wanted to see that, and he got that done on the show and made it unique. It really did. That you had... um a show that was trying to be socially pro progressive, was trying to be uh, forward-looking, trying to be positive, and also really had an actual um, racially diverse cast. I mean, he had a little of everybody. And, and he he had the Russian on there for the Russians on the Cold War with Chekhov, uh, with, and he had the funny haircut to, you know, to kind of give homage to the Beatles, which was rigged back when you know Star Trek was going on. You know what I mean? He had the alien with Spock. You know, he had the, 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 the lovely uh, black lieutenant doing all the communications. You know, um, we had, of course, the Asian with uh, Sulu. 
and chopping people in the neck and, you know, doing some uh, interesting, fun action type things. Uh, that was really great to see. You know, we had the old Scottish guy, Scotty, over here getting some engineering going. You know, he had a really, really wonderful cast. I, I also thought it was great that in many instances, uh, they didn't make the alien be his conscience because, you know, sometimes you didn't agree with Spock on things. But he had the doctor his conscience. And this doctor, the conscience boy, he didn't play around. He stood up to the captain and he held his own opinion and he just wasn't going to sign off on everything the captain wanted to do. I always liked that about the show, too. There was no cult of personality there. You know, the captain had to earn his respect, and he did. And when they didn't agree with him, they had no problem telling him, whether it was the doctor or whether it was, uh, you know, um, Spock. So there's no problem doing that. I mean, I think even one time, even Scotty told him something, and I think he fired him for a little while. So it was good to see that uh, people did that. But They did it out of... Uh, the family environment that was created on that ship as they were going out for that five-year mission, you know. And, and also they did it because it, it was a, a, also a way of respect. I mean, they're all, all of their lives are on hanging on what, what, you know, decisions are made. But he took it seriously, and that's what I always liked about the show, too, is the captain took his ship and his crew and what he had to do very seriously. I mean, there was plenty of episodes where he just, like, take me, leave my ship alone, leave my people alone. So he, he always did the right thing on, on something like that. And that made him a really interesting character because he might not have been the, always the most intellectual character on the show, but I, I could tell you something. In many instances, he definitely observed the ethical and even sometimes the moral dimensions uh, of the kind of job description he had on that show. That he took very seriously. And it, it, it lent real weight to the show, I thought. So it wasn't just a bunch of aliens and shooting people and blowing up stuff and you know it, it had real real I, I thought uh, ethical and moral weight to it and, and really helped to the substance of, of a show like that to have the captain you know take his oath and and take his job seriously and of course Roddenberry took it very seriously too I mean just like Sterling I mean he had all kinds of fights with the, with the, all kinds of people on the networks you know uh, about the things he was trying to do uh, but in the end, you know, he won. The show was successful, but eventually they canceled it after three years. He's quite depressed after that, of course, because, you know, he did everything he could. At one point, he sweared off writing for TV for a while because he was just like, oh, this is a lot to, a lot to handle. Um, he wound up making some, some money to keep himself going because, you know, he didn't own the rights to Star Trek um, by doing some lectures, and, and he went to a lot of those conventions, the, the science fiction conventions. Eventually, it was those conventions that wind up bringing back Star Trek, first in terms of the uh, of, of the repeat episodes. Remember, people like me were still too young for this show. I mean, when it, when it, when it started, I was one years old, and when it ended, I was three. So I didn't even see the show until I was like eight or nine years old. That's when it started going into its reruns, and they were starting to show it on TV a lot more. It was starting to pick up uh, interest again, and that's when I first saw it. And, and of course, uh, later on, it, 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 uh, they started pushing the the uh, the studio to finally put together a, a Star Trek movie, and they wound up doing a, a, a six or seven of those movies. He had a, a, a big job on terms of uh, consulting for the show and being the executive producer, so that was great. Uh, it was able for him to to actually finally become financially secure because, ironically, just like Sterling. Here's a show that, that changes history on television, and you're leaving the show, and you're almost broke. 
So it's just amazing what these guys had to do and how they didn't get really any real money until later on. <laughs> Not during the show, but later on. And that was the case for him. That's when he started making some decent money. He was still um, married to uh, Major Barrett, who he continued to marry until he died. Um, he was able to resurrect uh, the, the Star Trek show in, in terms of a new generation with a new crew. And he was able to see that through uh, before his health had failed. And he got his wife a job over there. She wound up being Counselor Troy, uh, the woman that was on that ship as a counselor, the mother of that, of that counselor. So she, was wanted, she wound up being on a number of episodes through the years of that show. So that was always fun to, to have her out there doing something different. And I always liked that a, a great deal. And again, you have a show that is racially diverse. You got your aliens, you got your all different kinds of people, you got women who are important, doing important jobs. This time the doctor is a woman. You know, the, 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 uh, the science officer, it, 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 more like the tactical officer, is a woman. So you got a lot of uh, kick ass people on that, on that show. And, and a wonderful actor with uh, Patrick Stewart, who did a tremendous job. I, I just loved everything he did on that. He was just one hell of an actor. It's great casting, it really was. And, and Roddenberry was able to get that, that, that show going again. He had more fights with the network later on because I think everybody who knows anything about Star Trek agrees that that last, not that last one, but the next to last Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, was horrible. And in terms of the storyline, not very Star Trek when you're trying to force some kind of Cold War, you know, theme on it. And the Cold War theme is somehow, you know, we can't get along with the Klingons because they're more like the Russians. No, the Russians were always wrong. There was nothing to ever get along with them with when, when you... When you have a, a country that doesn't believe in freedom and wants to take over the entire world, there's nothing for you to compromise or get along with. So, again, you wouldn't be able to get along with the Klingons that way. They kind of goofed that up with some of the, the hokey politics, unfortunately. It was some very Star Trek. And even though Star Trek uh, Five that came after that, uh, not, not Five, but the one that, that came after that wasn't all that tremendous either. I mean, fine. I still enjoyed it, but... I agreed with Roddenberry about that. It was just not so not so great. Just, I really wish they came up with a different storyline, especially since they had that great storyline where they put in about the environmentalists and the whales and going back in time. That was great. They did a great job on that. They really did. I, I wish the, they did more of those kind of shows. But, hey, he got the reruns going over there. Um, Roddenberry was able to secure a, a lot of the licensing, so that's really, and in the end, when it started picking up again, he was able to make some more money on the toys and, you know, licenses on, on, the, on, the, on the lunch boxes and stuff, and that was great, and of course, with the reruns, getting the royalties back, and you know, a lot of money from those uh, um, movies, and then, of course, when they, when they redid the Star Trek in the next generation, as you know, it went on to many other shows, and he was dead at that point, by the he agreed to the uh, Deep Space Nine, but he was dead by the time they started producing that and started putting that out there. So, you know, I think he would have been really pleased to have them of uh, uh, African American as a captain who did a tremendous job. That Avery Brooks, what a great job he did, and a real wonderful job of having the a son on board and, and the father son relationship. One they never really got a chance to do on the other shows because they really didn't have too many children on there. In this case, they did, so that was that was great. And it was also the first show where uh, the workplace was on a space station rather than on a spaceship. Not that they didn't do some spaceships, because they did, but that was really his home base, the actual 
space station itself. So that was great. They wind up doing the Voyager series, and then of course Star Trek uh, Enterprise, uh, like a, sort of like a prequel to the earlier the Enterprise, the one even before um, Kirk had started. All of these shows were great, and, and they all, of course, follow the Star Trek canon of, of things that were necessary uh, to to make a, a show uh, about Star Trek, because that's what you had to do. You do had you did have to speak a certain vocabulary. I mean, you had you didn't have lasers; you had phasers. You know, you had deflector shields. Star Trek was one of the few sh- few shows to where, even though they had space shuttles where they can go and land on a planet or even go to another spaceship, they also had a transporter beam to transport you down to places. None of the other shows had that. You know what I mean? None of them did. Battlestar Galactica did not. Star Wars did not. Um, all the other shows did not have something like that. And, and of course, Star Trek and, and really the prophetic wisdom of of Gene Roddenberry, in many ways, it predicted a lot of things that came on later. You know, the tricorder about trying to measure people's uh, you know, symptoms and stuff. We we have the devices like that now, uh, using dicks to have information and put them into a a, a, a board on on a panel so that you can read and, and hear things. We we had those uh, not too many years ago before we we moved even past that. Giant view screens, of course, we have. We now have lasers that can destroy things. You know, we have we have exploration in space more down than you know ever before. You know, um, so he he definitely predicted a, a lot of things that we have right now. He he really did, and and in that, the the universe he built was was I I thought very very clever because you know he had some rules to help keep some bad things from happening. They had that prime directive, meaning that you couldn't interfere with other planets and how they evolved. So this way you didn't mess them up and let them do what they had to do. You know, you visit them in secret or, you know, in, in, in some cases, you know, when there was, because, you know, there's been a few shows where they, you know, captains lost their mind and actually got involved and started messing around with societies. You know, they showed the, you know, the results of something like that. I think that was also a way to, for us to understand our own history on the planet and how oftentimes, uh, you know, colonization went, went, went tragically wrong and we wind up being, you know, more of invaders than in explorers and, and, and the historical consequences for that without going too far. That, that show really explored a lot of that and we don't really get to see a lot of that in, in science fiction. And that's really what I, I loved about that show is it, it did a great job of being very literary, you know, very, uh, I thought, visionary, you know, and, and of course, uh, indeed, uh, humane, even when it's dealing with aliens. It was, you know, what I mean, they had they had life forms out there. You still had to treat them with respect. You know, you only defend yourself, you know, when you're under attack, you know, so they they did. They did a lot of Dream Roddenberry. He did an incredible amount of things. He died uh, in 1991. He was 70. Um, one of the few human beings that uh, had his ashes uh, brought to uh, to orbit. Uh, no one's uh, only a few people have ever had that happen. I think Carl Sagan did too. Not too many people. So that's a, a great honor. Uh, he was the very first TV writer to get his own uh, Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame star. Uh, Rod Stern got one years later. Ironically, his Rod Stern was a lot many many years before him. But that's just the way that sort of thing works. Twilight Zone became really big later, but Star Trek was, in many ways, always, always big. I know it's always dominated my own um, science fiction imagination. I always welcomed the show. 
even when there was a couple episodes that were horrible, like Spock's brain. Oh my God, that was horrible, but you still enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things that's like in Star Trek. It's the same thing with, you know, uh, Twilight Zone. You're going to have a couple of shows that really, I, I thought just like, wow, this is just horrible. But, you know, you love it because you, um, you know the quality has been there. You know it's not always going to be horrible. You're going to, like anything else, you're going you're gonna to swing and miss. And everything's going to be a home run. And also because you, you deeply admire and respect the people behind it. That uh, they really cared about getting, you know, art out, literacy out, literary things out, intelligence out. Yes, even ethics and, and social progress out. And, and, it, and because of that, it really transforms, you know, writing to be something more than just, uh, you know, filler between, you know, cigarette commercials or you know, candy commercials or, or car commercials and all the things that happen on the commercial level. It got us uh, past that. All right, folks, I definitely wanted to thank you all for, for joining us on this episode. I really do appreciate all the support. Um, next year, we'll have definitely have some emails. Out. I already got some already. I'm really happy. The next three shows here, we're going to be doing a, a, a writing series. Okay, It's going to be called... Uh, Germinal Joust, and so it'll be about different angles and different impressions about writing. Uh, the first one will be uh, writing as a priority, then it's going to be writing as a passion, and then writing as a pledge. And then after that, the show before Christmas will do called The Pledge Against Conformity. And then towards the end of the month, we are going to be doing a, a great show on uh, Maya Angelou. If I'm able to get somebody else to interview this month, I have room towards the very end of the month possibly the 30th or the 31st where I can actually put an interview show in there which would be nice you know and wrap it up and I left it open and see what something happens or maybe I can even get a, a, a an editor to do an interview so we'll see these are not the easiest things we're not in the easiest times and of course you know on top of that the holidays so it's a lot to to navigate around but uh, I hope so otherwise we will be doing some things in uh, in January and I, and I can't wait until next time folks God bless that was episode 169, Classic Spotlight Series, Thoughts on Gene Roddenberry. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.